Hi everybody, it's Bina007 here for the ninth edition of the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread. And once again today, this is a mini pod where I'll be taking you through Agatha Christie's The Mystery of the Blue Train, originally published in 1928, when Agatha Christie was 38 years old and recently divorced. This will be a spoiler-free episode, so you can go and read the book and not have the joy of discovering the ending ruined. But after the end music, I will discuss the solution and how it is shown in the TV version. So if you haven't read the book yet, please stop at the final music. All right then, on to the mystery of the blue train. This is one of my favorite of Agatha Christie's novels. Um, because it's set on a luxurious and real-life train that used to go from Calais down to the French Riviera and actually onto the Italian Riviera to San Remo. It was actually called the Calais Méditerranée Express. Um, It ran from 1886 to 2003 and was finally killed off when France um, put in a proper high-speed train from Paris down to Nice. But my goodness, it sounds very luxurious. It was an overnight train, um, incredibly decadent, maybe as one might think of the Orient Express today. And there are many famous people who travelled on this train, including the Prince of Wales, who later ran off and abdicated, uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, Coco Chanel, uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and I think perhaps most evocatively, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And if you read his novel, Tender as the Night, which is an amazing novel, um, you can see the influence of the blue train and its destinations on that. But really, the whole novel is set in luxury. In London, we're in the luxury hotel, the Savoy. One of the characters has a house on Curzon Street in Mayfair. When they're in Paris, they're staying at the Georges Saint Hotel. When they're in the south of France, they're at the Negresco. And part of the action takes place in a beautiful, beautiful villa, the Villa Marguerite. So this is very much a novel of high society or people who are down on their luck and aspire to pretend to be in high society. And yet it all starts in St. Mary Mead, which those of you who love Miss Marple novels will realise is where Miss Marple lives. But I love it because it's a novel that seems to give you a glimpse into how a certain kind of person lived in the 1920s between the wars when money was no option and everything was deeply glamorous. So what is the plot of this novel? Well, it starts off in Paris with a little thrilling scene where a very famous set of rubies, including one called the Heart of Fire, is fenced and then bought by an American multimillionaire called Rufus Van Alden. And I think we're given to take that the Heart of Fire is one of the world-famous stones, like the Koh-i-Noor, that we saw in The Mysterious Affair at Styles. It's, it's a jewel with history, and in this case, tragic history, that the people who've owned it, the women who've owned it, have come to tragic ends. Rufus Van Alden buys the the ruby to give to his daughter, Ruth Kettering. She's very unhappily married to an English aristo called Derek Kettering, who one day will inherit a Leckenbury and one of the great estates of England. But the family has no money. 
were given to understand that for generations they've had gambling addictions and that Derek is no different. Um, He very much married Ruth for her money. She married him for the title. And in fact, she didn't really want to marry him. Her heart had been broken by a French swindler called the Comte de la Roche, and her father had broken that up. And so the marriage really started on a backed foot. Since then, Derek Kettering has become hugely indebted. Um, He's having an affair with a very exotic lady called Mirella, who makes it, sorry, called Mirelle, who makes it clear that she will not stay with him if he isn't rich. Um, And when she finds out that uh, Ruth is under pressure to divorce Derek, Mirelle says, well, you know, I will leave you if you don't have money. And wouldn't it be funny, ha ha, if something happened to Ruth, if she had a little accident, because then you'd inherit her wealth. Because even though Rufus Felton Alden is still alive, he settled outright um, two million pounds on Ruth Kettering when she got married. And that two million, I think, is worth about 140 million pounds today or about 170 million dollars. So no chump change and clearly gives both Morel and Derek Kettering a reason to murder Ruth before the divorce can take place. Unfortunately, Rufus Van Alden, the father, finds out that Ruth is actually having an affair also, as well as her husband. He's having, she's having an affair with her old lover, the Comte de la Roche, who presumably is after her because he wants the ruby and the money too. And like a overbearing father, he tries to persuade Derek Kettering to grant Ruth the divorce without contesting it. Because obviously now that Ruth is having an affair too, Derek could contest it because on those days, if you proved infidelity that the other was in the wrong, it put you in a very weak legal position. So he sends his secretary, Major Knight, into Derek and says, look, if you just clear off right now and don't contest the divorce, I'll give you £100,000 to help clear your debts. And that £100,000 again would be worth about £7 million today or $8.5 million dollars. So we are in the world of money. We're also in the world of fatherly love towards a daughter who is making bad life decisions and desperately needs help. And so we enter act two of the story. Ruth Kettering is planning to meet um, her lover, La Roche, on the blue train and has lied to her father and taken with her the heart of fire rubies, even though she knows her lover is a swindler and probably half suspects what he's really after. She dismisses her maid, Ada Mason, in Paris so that she can supposedly meet her lover in private. Little does she know that by pure coincidence, her husband is also on the train and wants to confront her about the divorce. Now, there's also another major character on this train called Catherine Gray, and she's the lady who lives in St. Mary Mead. She's a 33-year-old lady with very fine grey eyes, a little past her first youth, but still very attractive. She has been living up until now a very, very poor life as an old lady's paid companion, but has suddenly inherited a fortune. The old lady was obviously sitting on a nest egg no one anticipated was quite that large. So she decides to take the money, buy a new wardrobe and head to Nice, where she has been invited to stay with her cousins, who'd previously rather ignored her. Um, The cousin is the aristocratic lady Tamplin, who she's still wealthy, but not not as rich as she once was. We we are taken to understand that 
Her fortune was diminished during the war. She has a grown daughter called Lennox, who's a bit awkward, a bit plain, um, but wonderfully straightforward, really fun to be around. And a very young fourth husband called Chubby, who's like a character out of P.G. Woodhouse. Um, so they've decided that they're going to invite their newly incredibly rich cousin to come and stay with them in the south of France and see if they can touch her for money. And upon this train, the last of the major characters is obviously Hercule Poirot, our beloved Belgian detective. So all of these characters um, are on the train to Nice. And when the train pulls into the station the next morning, we realise that Ruth Kettering, the millionaire's daughter, has been murdered and that the heart of fire is missing. Indeed, Catherine, who had lunch with her before she was murdered, identifies the body. Catherine then goes off to stay with the Tamplins. Um, Lady Tamplin wants to sell her story to the papers. And Poirot says to Catherine, they'll investigate the murder together. I shall leave the plot there. Hopefully that's whetted your appetite. Um, Obviously, there are a lot of motives around money, around the ruby, potentially sexual jealousy. Um, you know, a, half, uh, a couple, Ruth and Derek Kettering, both taking lover each. Um, what I really love about this novel, apart from the glamorous setting, is I really believe in the characters. And even reading it now for the first time in over 20 years, I had such a firm picture of Catherine Gray as this very sensible, quiet, um, clever, intelligent woman And I had such a picture of Ruth Kettering as this slightly narcissistic, but really quite fragile and vulnerable woman who was kind of so tragically throwing herself on an old lover who was clearly taking advantage of her. And she's her father's daughter. She's no idiot. She kind of knows it, but can't help herself anyway. And then Derek Kettering as this sort of this gambling addict who on the one hand, looks quite disreputable and quite nasty, right? Because he is also has a lover, but is somehow very disappointed in his marriage and, and the cynicism of the world and has enough grit not to give in to the many chances um, people offer him for money to blackmail, uh, you know, to pay him off. So he's got some grit to him. I, I find the characters really convincing. I love the comedic turn that is Lady Rose Tamplin with her gossip and her love of being in the limelight and her sensible daughter, Lennox. Um, If you've ever watched Absolutely Fabulous, I always think of Lennox as being a bit like Saffron or Saffy and the mum, Adina, being a bit like Lady Tamplin. And I love love Chubby. I think he's just a very funny Woodhousing character. But I think there's a lot that Agatha Christie does in this novel around sort of social criticism that's really finely observed and really good, acute observations about what avariciousness will do to people and how people change around you when you come into money. And I do rather wonder if this reflects her own experience as someone who is a newly famous and wealthy author. But I have to admit to you, I am apparently the only one who likes this novel. Critics have not been kind, and neither is Agatha Christie. So this is what the British crime writer and critic Robert Bernard says of this novel. Quote, Christie's least favourite story, which she struggled with just before and after the disappearance. The international setting makes for a good varied read, but there is a plethora of sixth form schoolgirl French and some deleterious influences from the thrillers. There are several fruitier candidates for the title of Worst Christie. Hmm. Agatha Christie herself says... 
Really how that wretched book came to be written, I don't know. I was driven desperately by the desire, indeed the necessity, to write another book and make money. I had no joy in writing, no elan. I had worked out the plot, a conventional plot, to a a story adapted from one of my other stories, which we now know as the Plymouth Express. And she goes on to say, I have always hated the mystery of the blue train, but I got it written and sent it off to the publishers. It sold just as well as my last book had done, so I had to content myself with that, though I cannot say I've ever been proud of it. And finally later, she said, each time I read it again, I think it's commonplace, full of cliches, with an uninteresting plot. And I just can't disagree more. And I wonder if her memory of writing this book, this book that she started before... Um, realising her husband wanted a divorce, um, her mother dying, that disappearance, the emotional and psychological trauma, trauma, and then had to finish. After all that had happened, under pressure of writing for money, coloured her view of it and and made her think of it poorly. Um, Because I really find it such a fun book to read. And I actually read it, I didn't mean to, because I had to go to sleep, but I couldn't put it down. Even though, you know, I've read it before, I, I just think it really does zip along. Um, And I think of the novels we've read so far, I would say things like um, Styles or even Man in the Brown Suit are worse than uh, Murder on the Blue Train. Anyway, you have been duly warned that some think it's not very good. What is fascinating about this book is that Agatha Christie kept notebooks all of her life, very detailed notebooks, some on her writing process, some just kind of like a diary, some with scraps of grocery lists. And John Curran, a literary critic, has gone through and looked at them all and mapped out what you can tell of her writing process. And I I would really encourage you to read his book where he goes through her notebooks. Um, So as she was finishing writing this book on the Canary Islands in 1927, so she'd gone to Tenerife with her daughter and her friend slash nursery maid Carlo, to escape the press and the media to go and write this book. And there were 80 pages of notes in Notebook 54, and this is what John Curran says. Nowhere else in the plotting of her books is there anything like this. Flowing handwriting covers the pages, elucidating a complex plot with a minimum of deletion, the single most concentrated example of continuous text in the notebooks. It's an impressive example of Christie's fluency clarity and readability, all factors that play an important part in her continuing popularity. And I think that's absolutely true. I think when you read this novel, you get social observations, psychological depth, that fluency, that absolute command of plot, I think is 100% there. And I think you see her growing in maturity as a writer. There's none of the silliness and, um, I don't know, outlandishness of some of those earlier adventure stories. So I really think this novel is what I say that all the time, don't I? This really is one of my favourites, and I really hope you'll give it give it a go. Um, it hasn't. The, the only other thing I wanted to say is, and it kind of speaks to the time at which she wrote this novel. As I said before, just before and after the biggest trauma of her life. The dedication is really interesting. She dedicates it to a couple of people who are OFDs, the acronym OFD. What does that mean? It means the order of faithful dogs. So what Agatha Christie says is once all that emotional trauma was over, she, quote, had to take stock of my friends. She and Carlo divided her acquaintances into two separate categories. They called one the order of the rats, 
and won the Order of the Faithful Dog. So the people who'd stuck by her and the people who'd peeled off and maybe supported her husband. Um, So she dedicates this book to Carlo of the OFD and also of her terrier dog, Peter. So it's a really, really sweet um, dedication, I think. And the other thing to say is of the characters, I do think it's interesting that in her earlier novels in the early 1920s, her heroines tend to be young 20-something girls, very adventurous, nothing to lose, sassy, smart, lipstick-wearing, short-skirt, bobbed hair. Um, They are the modern young girls like Tuppence Beresford or Anne Bedingfield. But here, Catherine Gray is 33. She's past that. She's never lived that kind of a life. She's lived a very quiet life in a village. And again, I think it sort of speaks to a kind of maturity that this is more the viewpoint that Agatha Christie wants to take. And I think it's also interesting that finally, finally, she's got rid of Hastings back to the Argentine. And Poirot uses a combination of Catherine as his confidant to explain his inner thought workings, and also Rufus Van Alden. So Christie as a writer finds less obvious ways of having to have a detective sidekick in this book. Finally, sadly, we must always finish a little bit on some of the stuff that maybe hasn't aged as well in this book. And as much as I had remembered it very fondly, my word, the opening page and boom, were in full, almost early 1920s Agatha Christie anti-Semitism. And it's really shocking to read. There's no warning, no build-up. The novel opens with the following sentence. It was close on midnight when a man crossed the Place de la Concorde. In spite of the handsome fur coat which garbed his meagre form, there was something essentially weak and paltry about him. A little man with a face like a rat. Uh, The novel goes on. His His face gleamed white and sharp in the moonlight. There was the least hint of a curve in the thin nose. His father had been a Polish Jew. So my word, you know, a man like a rat with a curved nose, his father is a Polish Jew. It actually reminded me a lot of the earlier poems um, in the 1920s written by T.S. Eliot. He had a period, I think he was probably anti-Semitic for much of his life, but he had a period in the early 20s of writing really strongly um, racially offensive poems. And there is a very famous one, which is um, which is called Burbank with a Bidecker, Bleistein with a Cigar. Um, yeah, oh, I just remember reading those for A-level at school when we were studying T.S. Eliot. And I still remember the line because it's so powerful, right? Some of the stuff is so powerful. It's the rats are underneath the piles. The Jew is underneath the lot. Money in furs. And the opening of this novel, it pains me to say, is just in that same mode of this cosmopolitan, super wealthy, but somehow inhuman, pestilent, um, rodent-like. I mean, why do you need to mention that this person who is a jewel thief is also a po- or a jewel fence is a Polish Jew? It's just really horrific. And then later on in the novel, we get it again. So there is a Greek jewelry fence and jeweler who can reset stolen jewels. And at some point, someone says to him, "Your race does not forget." Um, and then he admits he's Jewish. So the idea that they would be miserly and clinging on to a, a grudge, it's its just so offensive. I'm pleased to say that's pretty much, quote unquote, all that's wrong in this novel. There's not the typical Hastings-led misogyny and, and other casual racism. 
So it's it's basically like two pages in this novel, but my word, that opening page just brings you up short um, and really, really unpleasant. Maybe for that reason, I'm not sure, but in the adaptations, the novel was televised in 2006 as part of the special episode of the series of Agatha Christie's Poirot, starring David Suchet. They get rid of all that stuff. They get rid of the Greek jewellery guy. They get rid of the marquee. They get rid of they get rid of the Polish Jew. And thank goodness they do. They make that decision. It's always interesting to me what people choose to excise from modern publications. Like the idea that, and then there was none has been renamed because its original name was considered offensive. And yet this stays, like this is a new edition of the book that I am reading and it's still in there. So it's seen that that doesn't need to be excised. I'm kind of pleased it isn't because I think that T.S. Eliot poem that I alluded to, this novel show you what was considered acceptable in England in 1928, um, let alone in the rest of the world. And the atmosphere and the tropes and the racist tropes that that Europe was seeing as current and that Hitler would then go on to build upon in the Nazi party, right? That it's not so outlandish because this was something that was in a best-selling crime novel of its time. And I do always find it weird when people are like, oh, it could never happen here. Well, why? if you'd had the right leader in the right circumstances, why couldn't it have happened in England if everyone was reading this stuff and think, seeing nothing wrong with it? It's very sad, but I think it is, it is important to understand how built into the culture it was in that period. Anyway, back to the adaptation, which actually I think is incredibly good. A lot of it does seem to be set on a luxury train, um, and in the south of France, it really is very luxurious and it's brilliantly cast. I mean, believe it or not, you've got Elliot Gould as Rufus Van Alden. He's tremendous. Lindsay Duncan as Lady Tamplin. Um, a very young James Darcy as Derek Catering. I mean, it's just beautifully cast all the way through. The first third of the book, um, as um, in a TV adaptation, is mostly on the train. Um, the difference is here, all the characters are on board, so it's n- so even Lady Tamplin and the people living on Nice decide to come up and sort of meet Catherine in Paris and accompanying her down to Nice. It is, it's a really, really interesting adaptation. I'll say more of that about it in the spoiler part of this episode. That's all I want to say ahead of the end credits. I think this is a really tremendous book and it's a really, really, really good um, adaptation, I think, where they make changes they actually make sense. Like they are there to either take away some of the stuff that's sort of either offensive or distracts and to really sharpen up some of the character dynamics. So I would really encourage you to watch it. It's an hour and a half and it's, it's really great fun. But with that, whatever you're reading this weekend, I hope you really enjoy it. And I hope you'll tune in next time for the next mini pod. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, on for the spoiler part of this podcast. Um, so I think the solution to this makes a lot of sense. I like the idea that the Marquis is a famous jewel thief, and I think it's very well set up because you know that the Heart of Fire is similarly famous. It would attract that kind of attention. I think the clues are also well set. Um, we know from Pia, the very observant daughter of the Greek jewellery um, resetter, that the accented French is really interesting, that he's probably very fluent, um, but probably English. 
And we know about two thirds of the way through the novel, someone also comments on the fact that Major Knighton um, is very fluent for an Englishman. So I think that there's an obvious clue if you're paying attention. I think it's more questionable whether understanding who and what Ada Mason is is fair game. Um, Over and again, Agatha Christie will use this tool, won't she, of having actors and actresses as her killers. Um, and whether we're meant to know that they've been on the stage or not. And also, when are you meant to take the servants seriously as potential villains or not? I don't know. But it is interesting that in her books, time and again, MPs, members of parliament, um, members of holy orders and actors and actresses, she really seems to have it in for them as potential murderers. Um, I also felt as I was rereading it that I didn't really understand why they had to kill um, Ruth Kettering when they just wanted the jewel. And even Rufus Van Alden asks this of Poirot, but why do they need to murder? And he's like, well, they have a taste for it, or he has a taste for it. And I was like, mm, that's a little bit thin. And even the bludgeoning of the face, was that just to throw people off? Or because he is such a, you know, passionately criminal, psychotic, violent murderer. It's, yeah, I, I anyway, that bit I think is, I would dock it one star out of five if I were reviewing it for that reason. It's interesting, I think, that in the TV show, they get rid of the whole Greeks and, yeah, that sort of opening prologue completely, which is probably a good thing. Chubby becomes Corky, which is a far better Woodhousian name. I think it's all very well acted. What's really interesting is, is I feel they try and soften the character of Derek Kettering. Um, Morel is not Derek's lover, but Rufus Van Alden's lover. And she is actually sent by Rufus to try and seduce Derek to manufacture evidence against him for the divorce. And he refuses because his secret in this version is that he really loves his wife. They really try and make him feel more sympathetic, which is weird because in the end, they don't have Catherine go off with him, which is a big part of the the book. So it's like, why do you need to make him more sympathetic? But they do. And it's, it's very well played by the actor, I think. I think he makes Derek Kettering seem far more interesting than he probably really was. They also make Ada Mason Major Knighton's lover, which gives her the motive of jealousy in attempting a second murder on Catherine Gray, which is really interesting. And I think they're very much taking um, the cue from a lot of later Agatha Christie novels where she will make a pair of lovers that people don't realise are lovers um, the solution to a murder. So this is obviously borrowing very heavily from another famous luxurious Um, set Agatha Christie novel. The other thing that they do in the TV show, which I don't really think is necessary, is that they give Catherine Gray a motive. We're meant to understand that that Ruth Kettering's father bankrupted her father and then drove him to, or not bankrupted him, but drove him to suicide, which I think was a bit unnecessary. And they give Rufus Van Alden a mad woman in the attic living wife, which apparently gives Morel a motive So they do, they add in some other stuff, which I'm not as pleased about. But I think what they do do really successfully is they they make Ada Mason much more of a character all the way through. So it's not so much of a surprise and it doesn't feel quite as unfair when you realise she's one of the co-murderers. So in that respect, I think actually in, in many ways the TV adaptations as good, if not better than the book. So anyway, I hope that no one who hasn't read it or watched it has listened to this bit. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how you think it, it goes. I mean, it it's a much maligned book and I genuinely think it's very good. Anyway, if you read it, let me know. Bye, everyone.